So let us begin on chapter 3, perhaps the most familiar part of Ecclesiastes to many of us, and we will read verses 1 to 15. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silence, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what, has been, what, what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do a miracle. And by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears by your spirit that we may see and hear things otherwise we cannot. And that we would worship you as a response. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. For the sake of just jumping in here, uh, there's, there's a lot for us to cover. And as we travel through a book like this, there are a lot of terms that come up that we really need to spend time defining, which in one sense can kind of slow our time. But it's necessary for us to understand this book. And as you see your, the bulletin, you see the outline here. We're going to look at what wisdom is. We haven't even defined that or talked about that. And this is wisdom literature. We're going to look at the poem and what it teaches us. And then we're going to look at two things that we can take away um, from this poem on how to live life. So first, I want to look at what wisdom is. And I've always loved the, the definition that a seminary professor named Jack Collins used. And that is, wisdom is the skill in the art of godly living. In other words, it's the ability to navigate the crossroads and the potholes of life well. That's another way to put that. But first, sometimes it's helpful to begin with what wisdom is not. Wisdom is not getting into the mind of God. It's very important that we start here uh, this morning, especially as we look at this poem in a minute, but also as we consider wisdom literature as well. Wisdom is not getting into the mind of God. It's not us being let into the control tower of the cosmos, if you will, where we are given understanding and purpose to all that is going on around us. Many of you by now perhaps have 
been to an airport and, and if you've ever been to an airport, you know, and experienced sort of the confusion and the complexity of everything going on around you with planes taking off and landing and where did they take my baggage and how do I know it's going to end up where I'm supposed to be and then it doesn't and then you're even more confused and frustrated. If you've been to DFW, you know intimately the confusion and complexity of airports and air traffic control. How are all these planes doing what they're doing? Who is in control here? <laughs> who, who knows or is deciding which plane should stay? Which one should go? How is all this working? Okay. But if you were at DFW, we'll just, we'll just stay there. And you're asking these questions. And somebody said, hey, come with me. I'm going to take you up to the air traffic control tower, which is that tower that's up there. It's not a hotel. Um, People are up there, and if they were to let you up there, you'd walk into that room, and you'd see all these screens everywhere, right? And you would see a radar that mapped out miles, and on that radar, you'd see dots, and those dots represent actual planes that you couldn't even see coming in. You would, you would begin to see the full picture, as it were, of, of how and, and what is guiding this process of complexity and confusion, of who is allowing and saying that these planes can land and leave and vice versa. You would be granted access to that it would be there would be purpose there you'd understand it more well many believe that when god gives us wisdom this is what happens that we are somehow given access into the mind of god into what is going on discernment understanding purpose but that would be untrue that would be untrue. Wisdom from God is not having access to his mind. It is not him giving us understanding and purpose to all things happening in and around us. It is not us being granted providential insight into all of life's confusing events and happenings. But this is not what wisdom is. We as creatures are never granted access into the mind of God. And even if we were how could we expect to comprehend only what God can comprehend and know? Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of, his, of this law. Well, this is what wisdom is not. It's not access to the mind of God. The secret things that belong to God. We must navigate with what has been revealed to us. And this kind of gets to what wisdom is for. And that is wisdom is for trying to do the right thing at the right time according to love and a reverence for God and his glory. It's a skill. It's doing the right thing at the right time as best you can. So wisdom is not having access to God's mind. We are to let it. We are to wear where we are to let it into plan, uh, where we are let into, sorry, the plans and the purposes of all things. Rather, it's information, it's knowledge that is then used in 10,000 places throughout the day where we are simply trying to see and do the right thing in the given situation. Notice, though, that wisdom assumes something here, and that is reverence and teachability, it is trust. The Bible has a word for this, and it's called the fear of the Lord. And Proverbs, which is another book of wisdom literature, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is where wisdom starts. The fear is not a trembling fear that we might think of. It is a trembling trust. A trembling trust, as Douglas O'Donnell writes. It is a reverence. It is a humility. It is an awe that leaves you teachable 
because you are confronted with God's awesomeness, power, sovereignty, and control, and thus confronted with your smallness, limitations, your creaturehood, the feeling you get when you're at DFW and you have no idea what in the world is going on around here. When we begin to settle into what wisdom is and what wisdom is not, we begin to see that there is a control that we are actually after in this world. An understanding that we never get, nor were we meant to get. In fact, as we'll see, God has made it this way on purpose. But while that might sound scary and unsettling to some of us, the poem in chapter 3 that we're about to look at is here to comfort us by showing that By showing us that while we do not have access to the mind of God and all that is going on in life under the sun, God has placed all things in its perfect time. While we look around, as we do when we are at DFW International Airport, and wonder what the heck is going on, what was the purpose of this? God is signaling takeoffs and he's landing planes at exactly the right place and the right time for his purposes and his glory. The invitation this poem offers us is that because God has times and places for all things under the sun, we can rest assured that he is in control when we are not. And that, friends, should ultimately bind us to God himself which I would argue is the purpose of wisdom in the first place. It's not just so that life will go well for you. God actually has intentions of of, of creating situations and giving you wisdom so that ultimately it would create a dependence upon him. It would bind you to him. That is what wisdom is and what wisdom is not. And this helps us as we enter into what this poem teaches us, which gets us to our second point here. What does this poem teach us? Well, first, the poem is a complete summary of one's life. That's what this poem is. It is the seasons of one's life, if you want to put it that way. And while you can study the 28 individual elements of the poem, we're actually meant to take them together as a whole. And if we're also doing the math, those 28 turn into 14 pairs, which turn into two sets of seven. Sort of an important number around uh, the Bible. Sort of a perfect number. It's a whole number. And that's why we say that this is about a summary of one's life. But further, the poem is also, remember, about life under and in this fallen world. Now, we've used that word a lot. Let me briefly explain what we mean when we say the fall or that that, that, that this book is about uh, the experiences of living life under the sun in a fallen world. When we say the fall, we are referring to the biblical account in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve disobey and take of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after that, as Michael Williams puts it, it was not, it was not the nature of the tree that made it dangerous, but what it stood for obedience to the word of God. And after that, with this disobedience, Adam and Eve broke the promise they had entered into with God. And thus they fell from this unique sinless status and relationship that they experienced with God in the garden. Another way I like to put it when we talk about the fall is that this is just, this is the Bible's way of saying Okay, well, first of all, this is how sin got into the world, but that's still abstract. This is the Bible's way of saying, this is how we get to where we are today. This is, this is why death happens. It's because of the fall. So we talk about brokenness. We talk about there's distortion in this world. We talk about there, people lie and cheat and seem to get away with it. 
It's because sin has marred. It has been and it has invaded God's creation. That's what the fall means. But it's also, friends, the backdrop for why Jesus and the cross are so important to us. So you've got to have both of these things. For he is the hero, he is the rescuer, as we have said at times, that comes in and fixes what we broke. So that one day, someday, when he returns, all things will be made new. Okay? That's what we mean when we say the fall. And so the book of Ecclesiastes then is life as we experience it under the sun or life in a fallen and broken world. Because sin is real it exists, and death is the, is, the, is the punishment for that sin that comes in and ruins all that is good. So this poem is a beautiful, timeless summary or reflection on the whole of our lives in the context of this fallen world. This is the first thing the poem teaches us. It is a picture of one's life under the sun. But what else does this poem teach us? It teaches us, namely, of who is really in control and who isn't. The poem is meant to be a comfort to us as we look at it from the valley floor. How in the world would this be a comfort to us as we look at it from the valley floor? Because it tells us who truly is in control. First, what's unsettling about this poem as we read it? What's unsettling is that we read these events that make up our life. But we do not know when they occur. And the Bible gives us no indication as to when these things will happen, but that they will happen. There seems to be no order or logic to the events and their timing. We do not have the full knowledge of God as to when these things will happen, but that they will. And this, friends, is unsettling to us. But what begins to settle the anxiety about this is that while I may not know the times exactly, I know that my life happens Under the watch of a God who knows the times exactly. This is the message from the preacher in Ecclesiastes. The poem then invites us to enter this perspective of time where we live a life that is actually part of a bigger picture that we cannot see, that we do not know about, but that God can see and that a good and wise God knows about. If you've ever taken an interest in tapestries, the making of them especially, you know that tapestries are those big cloth displays, usually in castle walls, or if you have a great room that's big enough to hold them. If you ever take an interest in those, you know how they're made, and that if you were looking at one, perhaps at a museum or in someone's house, and you had the privilege of having them take it off the wall and lay it face down on the floor, you would see the back of that tapestry, and what you would see is this sort of woven mess of ugly and out of place threads that don't seem to work or to sort of come together to make the picture that you saw on the front end. What you would see would be knots and tangles and all just sort of a mess. Friends, that is where we live today. Our lives, as it were, are threads that are being woven together in this tapestry that God is in his perfect time is moving is moving along until he comes back again for all eternity. The front side is the story that God is weaving, as I said, together with our individual lives. Our single threads, as it were, when viewed from the back of that tapestry, seem confusing, without meaning at times. But the call here is to trust the artist. We have to trust that this limited vision that we have is really a part of something bigger that in the fullness of time 
will come together as a beautiful, glorious tapestry of God's providence and plan. This is the promise to us in Jesus Christ, and it's, becoming, and it's being commuted, communicated to us through this poem. And so the question becomes to us as we size up this poem as our life under the sun is, can we live within its limits? Can we live within this poem, this story? Because if we can't, this poem is terrifying, it's pointless, and random at best. But if we can, it's actually comforting, it's assuring, and joyful. But look at verses 9 to 13. Here the preacher interprets this poem for us. Gives us insight into the things that we've been saying. He concludes the poem with a familiar question. And it sort of tails into what we looked at last week in chapter 2. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? We spent a lot of time on the word gain last week. And, you know, he says this. In other words, with the seasons of life as they are, uncertain and unknowable to us, what does he gain from what his toil is? And, and the preacher doesn't answer, as you might expect him, in a normal way. Nothing. Vanity. It's all vanity. He doesn't answer like that, does he? Look at how he answers and said in verse 10, I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. It's a stark contrast to what we have been reading thus far. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that here, life for us under the sun, that there is in the midst of this sort of uncertainty, that, that, there, that there is this teaching or there's this understanding that God knows the times of all things. And in many ways, this is a ray of, another ray of light that comes down and meets us here at the bottom floor of this valley. God has made everything beautiful in its time, though we do not know about it. In other words, there are apparent times and seasons for everything. We don't know what those are, but God does. But what I, what I can trust is that he makes everything beautiful in its time. And there is a lot of beauty to be experienced under the sun. As we read through that poem, babies coming into the world, harvest, healing, laughter, dancing, love, peace. At the same time, though, there is death, killing, weeping, mourning, being alone, hate, and war. But here's what's true about these things as well. God is making those things beautiful, those terrible things Beautiful in its time, too. Jesus and his resurrection signal a reversing of these things, a reversing of the fall, where death swallowed up life. Now life swallows up death with the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, living within the poem is holding both the good and the bad times together, knowing that God has an appointed time for each as life under the sun. Again, this is the way things are. This is what you and I experience under the sun. And God is not absent from that. He is at work in mysterious ways that take the events and seasons of our lives and make them beautiful in time. Now, are we privileged to the wisdom and the insight of what that thread on the back of that tapestry is going to weave at the end of time? No, but we want it. We want to know so bad. And this gets to one of the, the, the biggest insights of this text. That there is a desire in all of us to know that. To want the control, so to speak. But not even just the control, but just the knowledge of where is this going? Will my life have meaning? And you know why you want to know that? It's because, friends, you still have Eden 
deep inside of you. Notice what the preacher says after verse 11. Also, he, referring to God, put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? That he would put eternity into our hearts. It means that you still have Eden inside of you, which means, and I'll read from Zach Eswine's commentary because it's great. Our souls instinctively yearn for a purpose, purposed life without end under this time-chained sun. That's the fight. We have been kicked out of Eden but the, because of the fall, but Eden has not been completely kicked out of us. And because of that, there's an unquenchable desire in us to find the key, as it were, to unlock, unlock life under the sun and to spring forth its mysteries and purposes. In other words, we are bound by time and all its uncertainty, but our hearts long for something better, something better that doesn't end. You know this. I know this. It is in our spiritual DNA as we have been made in the image of God. That is Eden, friends. And it's why death is so terrible. But did you notice there too? He puts eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, God has sort of left us in the dark. So that we can never know what God is up to, his comings and goings. And this may at first seem cruel to us, but it's not. It's actually a blessing. He wants us to trust him. And that, friends, is actually a better life in this valley. It is a better life in this valley. Gibson writes this. He says, the point is that we are not built to understand the big picture precisely because we live in time and God does not. If we could see the end from the beginning and understand how a billion lives and a thousand generations and unspeakable sorrow and untold joys are all woven into a tapestry of perfect beauty, then we, friends, would be God. You see where we're going with that. So what are we supposed to do with the fact that we have been made with eternity into our own hearts? We're going to look at two things here at the end that, that, that help guide us. Some wisdom that help guides us with that. But first, what is this poem trying to show us? Just to close this point. It's trying to show you your life. One that you get to live. One marked out by seasons and times. One filled with sorrows and joys. And everything in between. But more so, a life that is largely unrevealed to us. A life we long to have full access to, but will always seem out of reach, friends. A life where the absence of control, though, doesn't mean it's completely out of control. Can you live within the poem? And if so, what does that look like? And I have two things on your handout there that I think are helpful guide, guides for us as we think about this practically. Uh, the first is, is to be small. Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 3 that my story is not the story. And so rather my story is part of a much bigger story bound for all eternity. And this, this is put in place today. This is stamped with an exclamation point, which the preacher didn't have this insight, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
So not only am I never going to get answers to everything, not only am I never going to know how every thread ultimately fits together, I can live faithfully and obedient to a wise and caring God who does know these things because there truly is a time for everything. So to be small doesn't mean that my life doesn't matter. To be small doesn't mean that my life is somehow less significant. Actually, we'll see in the coming weeks that to be small creates greater significance for your life. To be small means I choose to live within the confines and limits that the poem has set for me. Life under the sun, at the same time, to be small means I choose to allow God to be God. Which means he will always know things that I won't. But there's actually beauty in that. Because this is the way it should be. When my kids listen to me and they live within the boundaries that Ada and I have set for them, life goes well for them. And it goes well for me too. When they ask questions about these boundaries and they push against those limitations but still live within them, life is very good for them. But when they refuse to be small... And in this case, to be small means to be a child in a world with parents. That's when life is not good. And I don't mean not good because there's consequences or they get in trouble. That would be more external. I mean, it's not good internally for them. There's no peace as they lay their heads down at night. Internally, emotionally, psychologically, there is no peace with them because they're not trusting in something. No one is trusting. No obedience is happening. There's no fear. There's no awe. There's no reverence. And when no one is trusting, everyone wants what? Their story to be the story. And what's best for my girls is that they be small in a world with parents right now, trusting that mom and dad know things that they don't know and can see things that they can't see. Friends, the Bible wants us to be small in the exact same way. It wants us to become like children. We have echoes of this all of a sudden as Jesus comes to us in the book of Matthew and says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then later he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Living with eternity in our hearts, friends, looks like being children to an all-knowing, powerful God. Can you do that? Can you live within the poem in that way? The next thing we see is that we are called to live full, to rejoice, to be wise because it's good, and to embrace the realities of our finiteness, but also embrace, embrace the realities of our relationship with God. How does the preacher conclude this section in verse 12? He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Here's that gift language again that we talked about last week. And it's this refrain of eat and drink and take pleasure. Not because this is all that there is, if you remember, but it's because this is what there is. This is what God has given us. 
And so when we begin to live within the rhythmic pattern of the poem and accept not having all the answers, when we accept that there are good times and there are bad times ahead that we cannot control, being small, then we can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. As Paul tells us in Romans 12. And friends, the ability to rejoice in this life under the sun is a joy that God gives you. But it's also a mercy. For those who rejoice little, live little. And those who do not weep, especially with others, are numb to the eternity that God has placed in their hearts. The church should be a rejoicing church. The church should be a weeping church as well. And one of those reasons is because we, when we forget to weep with others, when we become numb to the eternity that is in our hearts, is because we have forgotten that we live in a time where things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And that in, the, in that way, we are to be signposts to the watching world. This is how we live full under the sun. It is to bring wisdom into our life decisions because we are tuned in to what life under the sun is like. That God said it would be like this. But I have not left you. But that my single thread is not the end of the story either. And we learn to embrace this because ultimately the wisdom that Solomon is offering us in this book is not access to the control tower of the cosmos, which is what we want. Right? It's understanding to the way of the world in which God should bind us to himself. Be small. Live full. Be drawn to a God who has all things in its time placed. J.I. Packer once more says this, the, key, the kind of wisdom that God waits to give to those who ask him is a wisdom that will bind us to himself. A wisdom that will find expression in a spirit of faith and, and life and a, faith, and a life of faithfulness. In other words, this wisdom is ultimately to bind us to God himself in a world that seems out of control, meaningless, and vanity. Rejoice, be wise, embrace. That is living full. That is living life with eternity in our bones. To live small and full is to live in a world where the days of our lives are truly numbered by God. But that, but that God knows every minute and will bring to completion all of this in his perfect timing. To live small and to live full is to say yea and amen that, through, that though we have eternity in our hearts, he has made everything beautiful in its time. To live small and to live full, though we have eternity in our hearts, is to trust that what seems meaningless and pointless today will be a thread that weaves a story of beauty and glory throughout all eternity. Let me close with one more story. I've mentioned before that, I guess it was four, four years ago, I'm just going to read this to y'all. Four years ago, we got to take a trip to Spain for two, to, for two months, and we took a, a team of eight students. And um, it was through a partnership with, with a missionary agency of our denomination called MTW and with RUF. And it was an incredible experience, as you would imagine that it could be, to live in a foreign place for two months, to live and work alongside full-time missionaries, and to get to do ministry in a context such as Madrid. Of the eight students, I want to tell you about one, and his name was David. 
David did not go to Alabama. He found himself on our team because he had a heart for missions and was studying Spanish in college to perhaps one day actually be a missionary in Spain. That's what he wanted to do. He had just finished his junior year of college, and he was a co-captain of his soccer team in college. And the world was at his fingertips at the age of 21. Over the two months, David was clearly the leader of our team. Without a doubt, along with two other, or sorry, he, he, he just had that I want to follow you into battle vibe, while at the same time he was humble and he was gentle. And by the time our trip had ended, we were looking forward to having David come visit us in Tuscaloosa when we got back. Well, as we left for the airport to fly home, David, along with two other of the guys on the trip, decided to do what all college students should do, and that is take a week to backpack Europe after a trip like this. They plotted their trip to Italy, then Switzerland, and off to Ireland, where David's father, a native Irish, would be waiting for them. On the second day of their journey, they spent the day hiking in the Swiss Alps. David was quoted as saying, this this was the happiest day of my life. And the boys finished their hike for the day and, and made plans to return to the lodge for dinner. David wanted to hike a little more. The other two took the train down, and David said he would meet them at the room just before dinner. But David never returned that evening. As the other two boys waited, and as the hours passed by, something was wrong. And after contacting police, all our nightmares were confirmed that the next day when David's body was found at the base of the mountain where he apparently slipped and fell to his death while having one last hike for the day. In in many ways, (laughs) this story is tailor-made for Ecclesiastes, isn't it? It is everything we know and we hate about this world. It is a story for many that is the reason we don't believe in God in the first place. It is a story for many that we never want to hear. And for me, and probably for the rest of my life, and I'm fine with it, David's death is an ugly and out-of-place thread that for the past four years has caused me so much confusion. And I've wondered how it could even have happened under God's watch in the first place. Why? What is the purpose of this, we say? Talk about meaningless. But you know this story. This is is not an, an, an unfamiliar story to us. We are not unfamiliar with the ugly and the out of place threads, as it were. And while we will never know or have the knowledge or the purposes of why things happen in this life... There's a a decision that's placed before us in this beautiful text that calls us to live within this poem. That there's a time for life and there's a time for death. And everything in between. What I do know and what I can promise you about this life and what I can promise you about what happened to David is that David did not live one second longer than he was supposed to. His Lord and his Savior knew the number of his days, his times. And that ugly and out-of-place thread, as it looks today, is actually and will be a thread that weaves a story of beauty and glory for all eternity. Today, a lot of us who knew David mourn and miss him. But a hundred years from now, nobody will be asking why. And 10,000 years from now, when we see, when we are set in eternity with King Jesus, we will be rejoicing over that thread. And how Jesus' timely life 
and his timely ministry and his timely death that was appointed at the right time for us and his resurrection had David's story in mind and has our stories in mind too. No matter what happens, we will see how they fit together and we will sing of its beauty for 10,000 more years to come. For now though, this is life under the sun for us. But it's inside the poem, marked with an exclamation part, marked with an exclamation point, That is the resurrection of Jesus. That what seems meaningless and pointless today will be a thread that weaves a story of beauty and glory for all eternity. Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of this poem and how it no, doesn't say enough, but it says everything that we need to know. We're thankful that you have set the times of our lives. We're thankful that you have made all things and are making all things beautiful in your time. Would you give us the faith to trust that? And would you give us the ability to see that wisdom and understanding and, and having purposes and, and having all of our questions a- uh, answered is not a precondition for faithful obedience to a wise and caring God who is with us in the midst of this. We pray that as